Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that transform. Many of us have discovered that to engage our organization and continue to serve our customers, we need to undergo change and transformation as the world around us continues to change. Last year, we visited with Robert Jacobs and discussed his work, Real-Time Strategic Change. Later on this year on Bookends, we'll have a chance to look at change through the lens of the World Cafe. And this month, we will be exploring appreciative inquiry with Diana Whitney, who has co-authored the book, The Power of Appreciative Inquiry, with Amanda Trostenbloom. Following our interview today, you are invited to log in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss change and transformation issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookend featured authors who are members of this group. You'll also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I would like to introduce Diana Whitney. Dr. Diana Whitney is an inspirational speaker, provocative educator, and pioneering thought leader in the growing field of appreciative inquiry and positive change. Through her work, her teaching, and her writing, she has positively influenced the lives of millions of people around the world. Dr. Whitney is an award-winning author, recognized in 2004 by the International Organizational Development Network for her contribution to the field through her writing. She is the author or editor of 15 books, as well as dozens of articles and chapters. Diana is the president of Corporation for Positive Change, an international consulting firm specializing in the application of appreciative inquiry, the revolutionary process she helped develop and spread to resolve the most pressing challenges of our time. In fields ranging from healthcare to education, from peace building to business, from community development to government, Diana coaches executives and their teams in support of organizational culture transformation, strategic development, and leadership capacity building. With over 30 years of experience, her clients include Merck, British Airways, Verizon, and J&J. The American Society of Training and Development recognized her appreciative inquiry work at GTE with their Best Culture Change of the Year Award. Diana is the founder of the Tahoe Institute, a center for dialogue among family therapists, educators, and organizational consultants. She's a fellow of the World Business Academy and an ongoing advisor to the United Religions Initiative, a global interfaith organization dedicated to peace. She is a distinguished a consulting faculty at Saybrook Graduate School and the Research Center where she teaches and advises PhD students. To get a copy of the of the Power of Appreciative Inquiry or to connect personally with Diana, you can visit her website which is www.positivechange.org. Diana Whitney, welcome to Bookends. Susan, thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to have a chance finally to work with you today. I'm really Indeed. looking forward to this time with you. Thank Diana, you. I know that we probably have some folks joining us today and certainly folks who will listen to this uh, in the future that really have never had a chance to work with Appreciative Inquiry. And I was wondering if we could just begin by having you tell us exactly what it is and how these two words, appreciative and inquiry, individually shape the process and the outcomes. Thank you, Susan. Well, to tell you exactly what it is might be pushing the edge a bit, but let me begin with giving you a working definition that I, I'm fond of. Appreciative inquiry is the study of what gives life to human systems when they are at their best. And that means what gives life, what energizes, what creates vitality for people, for relationships, for teams, for whole organizations and communities. And you'll notice that we don't say in that definition that human systems are always at their best. What we believe is that in order to create transformation and change, that it happens easier when we study what works and who we are at our best. 
And so appreciative inquiry says, let's study who we are at our best. Let's build on that. And then let's go from there and envision and make even better things happen. You asked about the two words, appreciative and inquiry. And when we go to a dictionary or our computer dictionary, we find that the word appreciative means to value, to regard highly, to prize, to cherish. And the word inquiry means to investigate, to study, to ask. When you put them together, it, it, it's pretty simple. It says appreciative inquiry is about studying and asking questions about those things that you value, those things that you regard highly, and those things that you want more of in your life. Now, very often people will say, well, if we just had to choose one, to be appreciative or to do inquiry, what would you choose? And I always kind of chuckle at that question because people expect me to choose appreciative. And I say, well, appreciative inquiry really needs both. But the notion of inquiry, when you take it to heart, means that you're willing to be a learner. It means if you're truly in a stance of inquiry, you are open to learn and to change depending on what you hear. And so the word inquiry, I think, is very dynamic and, quite frankly, a word that helps foster transformation. The appreciative part of it sets the direction. It sets our agenda. It says that we want to learn and grow in the direction of those things we value and we care about, as opposed to the problems and the habits that we're all too familiar with. Well, these are certainly things that every one of us on the call is interested in. And um, the life-giving characteristics of appreciative inquiry, I think, is is truly what sets it apart and makes it so unique. But it may still be a little difficult for some of us to visualize exactly what it is, um, Diana. And in the beginning of the book, you actually offer some examples of appreciative inquiry in action that might help people to really see how it actually does its work. Um, perhaps you'd be willing to share either some of those examples or, or even some more current examples from your work with us. I, I'm, that's a great question. I'm going to share an example that is in the second edition of the book. Um, and I'm sharing it because in some ways it's a little simpler to explain than some of the examples in the first edition. I've worked with the Sisters of Good Shepherd, an order of Catholic nuns. I've worked now for probably three years with them. But what they wanted in the very beginning was a process to set directions for the next six years of their community life. And so they wanted to do what we in business would say, that's strategic planning. But being a very community-oriented group, they wanted to be assured that everyone would be able to be involved, not only the sisters, but also their lay leaders. And so we gathered a group of people together, what we call a core team, the people who will plan the process and carry out the process. And that was a group of 35 people. About two-thirds of them were sisters, and one-third were the leaders of the various nonprofit agencies that they uh, have founded. And that group of 35 people said, we want to do an inquiry throughout our whole organization to involve 250 sisters and at least half as many of our lay contributors. And so we created an interview guide. Now, one of the things about an appreciative in interview guide is it's always in the language of the community or organization using the process. And so this interview guide had wonderful quotes from their foundress, and it was all woven with their uh, deepest theological beliefs. It wouldn't be an interview guide that would be created at British Airways or GTE, for example, other stories that are in the book. But the sisters and their partners created their own interview guide and then went out and did interviews. They did one-on-one -on -one interviews. Some of them did focus groups. They found themselves doing interviews in their infirmaries, 
And the elder sisters were so enlivened by being asked to share their stories that everyone realized that it was a wonderful process. And in the course of the process, this was not its original intention, but in the course of the process, the infirmaries were renamed. They are now called elder centers, and they're called wisdom centers. And, And so that was just one of the secondary benefits. But the interviews were conducted. There were about 350 of them. That core team came back together and analyzed all of the data. You see, appreciative inquiry is an action research process. It's a process by where we go out, we collect information, we come back, we make meaning of it, and we say, what does it tell us about who we are at our best and where we want to go into the future? They drafted a document with six direction statements. They took that out again to all of their community and said, what do you think? And people said, this is amazing. You heard me. You heard my ideas. You, there's my word in this statement. Um, you've quoted me. And so they were able to reflect back what the community was hoping for in the future. They refined that document, that set of directions, created even more specific recommendations to go with each direction statement. And that then at their, the meeting that they have every six years is called a chapter and at their chapter meeting, they, with 100% consensus, accepted that set of directions as their path forward for the next six years. You know, to be included in a process may seem like such a simple thing, yet it's overlooked by so many organizations. Indeed. An appreciative inquiry and many of the processes that you Um, talk to the authors about, are all focused on how to really enhance the engagement in an organization because we we know that people commit to what they help create. And if they have an opportunity to be heard and to contribute, they're much more likely to be committed and want to act on the output of the process. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, many of us, Diana, myself included, have kind of grown up in root problem-solving kinds of approaches. (laughs) Would you see appreciative inquiry replacing the need to address problems entirely? And what would you see as a difference between these kinds of approaches? Well, let, let me come at that from a number of different angles. Indeed, we have grown up with a problem-solving approach with a diagnostic model. It's a strong model, and it works in many, many cases. Uh, It works for physicians very often. Appreciative inquiry suggests an alternative, however. And what we find is in many situations, the problem-solving model is a habit. We've grown up with it, and we don't know anything else. When people are given the option to really do an analysis of strengths, And they're asked questions like, tell me when you have felt best, when you felt healthy. They start to have ahas, and they begin to say, oh, I see what I can do now to change my own life. So appreciative inquiry is is a deep shift in our approach to what we see, what we look for, and what we talk about in the world. I would love it to replace problem solving, but I don't think it's going to replace it 100%. I don't, I don't think anything should be 100%. But the reason I'd like to see it replace problem solving in organizations is for what we call unintentional consequences. The minute we hear that there is a problem, the conversation turns to what caused it and who caused it and what do we do about them. And so we go from having a problem to people being the problem to the whole organization being a problem. And that's the habit of our thinking and our communication. If we shift that to what we call a root cause of success analysis, we begin to see and learn different things. We become wise about how to succeed 
rather than facile in problems, I guess is a good way to say that. So problem solving, there are places and times when it's, it needs to be the approach. In many cases of human interaction and human organiz- organizing, appreciative inquiry is so much stronger because it engages people and it enlivens them and it helps them learn about how to do things well. What I'm really uh, hearing you you talk about there is just a, a real big shift in context from, you know, finger pointing um, and blaming to kind of envisioning. Would that be correct? Yes, envisioning and recognizing strengths. Recognizing strengths. And and I cannot say often enough that these are simply habits. It is not our human nature to walk around looking at what's wrong. It is the habit that we learned. It is the habit. We we all say, oh, I just can't watch television because the news is so negative. Well, you know what? Young journalists are taught. If it bleeds, it leads. Oh, no. They're taught. That's how you succeed as a journalist. And so if we teach our young people, we teach our management trainees, we teach our interns that if you focus on what enlivens people, you will give them life. Because that's the other piece of appreciative inquiry. We say our questions are fateful. They help you determine what you're going to learn, and they create the reality that is happening. I like to tell a a story that, you know, I, I could go into an organization, as I think many of us have, and ask people to tell me about stress in their workplace. And, oh, would we hear stories. And they would be, you know, ain't it awful, and woe is me, and my stress is bigger than your stress. And I will have, would have, by that simple question, tell me about the stress in your workplace, I would have raised people's blood pressure. I would have had them worrying that they're not going to hit the next deadline. And I would have had them talking about stress to one another. Imagine instead, one of my favorite subjects is joyful productivity. Imagine instead if I went into your organization and I said, tell me about a time when you experienced joyful productivity, a time when you all accomplished things beyond what you thought you could do and you had fun. People would giggle. First, because it's kind of a silly question. But then they would all be able to recall the time when they pulled together to get a particular proposal out, or they had to pull together and work late for a computer um, exchange, or when they just did something, and we'd all have those stories. And so... The questions we ask determine what we find, and they influence the realities that we create. I was really struck as I was reading the book, uh, Diana, by the wide range of formats that you could tap into to construct a very unique appreciative inquiry process that would fit your Uh particular needs and situations. In fact, I'd like to quote um, uh, uh, you in the book. You say, using appreciative inquiries like sitting down, to dinner in a fine restaurant. The choices seem unlimited, and there were so many possible combinations that no two dinners, even in the same restaurant, really are ever the same. And I thought that was a, a good way of, of looking at this. You kind of have this menu. And um, out of all of this, everything stems from these three core questions you talk about uh, in the book um, that we need to ask ourselves as we move forward into this. And the first of these questions that you talk about is, what are you trying to accomplish? And you call this the change agenda. Could you talk to us a little bit about the kinds of applications that this change agenda could 
you know, just to give people a sense of the uh, magnitude and um, the flexibility of AI as a tool and the different ways it can be utilized. Right. I, I think that, and I'll, I'll do this by giving you some examples. Uh, the change agenda could be, I, I heard that Carolyn Miller is on this call. Hi, Carolyn. And Carolyn Miller is a remarkable manager leader. She uh, is the executive director of an organization called Community Development Institute. And she has used appreciative inquiry to create an appreciative culture. That's been her change agenda, to bring appreciative inquiry into everything, the financial systems, the way they hold meetings, the way they work with their clients. And so Carolyn's change agenda has been to create an appreciative organization. I'm currently working at the University of Virginia Health System, and I'm working with a team of four executives, the CEO of the medical center, the dean of the School of Nursing, the dean of the School of Medicine, and the president of the Physicians Foundation. Those four organizations have been independent and interdependent in varying degrees for a very long time. One of the things that the employees have said in employee surveys is we need to be working across lines. The executives have, be, have began meeting a year ago, and in the early days we talked about, so what is the overarching change agenda. And the statement that they landed on is moving as one into the future. Now that is their change agenda. And so every appreciative inquiry initiative throughout the health system is focused on moving as one. Doctors and nurses, doctors, nurses, and patients, radiologists and technologists and doctors, everyone moving as one. That simple statement is profoundly transformative. And using that as um, an umbrella, if you will, um, for all of the appreciative inquiry processes helps everyone ask the question, how can we be more collaborative in the service of quality patient-centered care? And so that change agenda directs everything they do. At British Airways, the, the first bit of work was when, in the customer service division in North America. And their change agenda was simply the power of two. Because they're a customer service organization, and they wanted to focus on all of the ways in which they could continue to be at the top of their game as customer service providers. And so each organization defines their change agenda, um, and it, it becomes the, the, the raison d'etre, the purpose for what they're doing using appreciative inquiry. That's great. Good examples. You know, in, in the book, you start to kind of spell out what uh, a, a version of appreciative inquiry, the various versions of it, could look like. And one of those is sort of the full course, which is called the 4D cycle. And you illustrate this whole process uh, with a journey that was taken by one of your clients, the Hunter Douglas Window Fashion Division. And um, we I'd like to visit their process a little later, but for now, I was wondering if you could just kind of introduce them and tell us just a little bit about their background and what brought that particular organization to appreciative inquiry. Well, this is uh, this is a great story, and I'll I'll probably I'll tell it a little more uh, personally than is even in the book. My co-author and consulting partner Amanda Trustin Bloom had worked with Hunter Douglas for a year or so, doing fairly traditional organization development consulting, helping them do team building, supporting the executive team, uh, come together as a stronger team. And they were going through a, a couple of different processes. One of them was 
moving to SAP, a new computer system for inventory management. And Amanda said to me, you know, Diana, I actually think that appreciative inquiry would be useful, um, but I haven't really learned it yet. And this is where I'm sharing a little a, a, a tale, a personal tale. So um, I said, well, Amanda, the next workshop is nine months from now. And she said, I can't wait that long. They can't wait that long. So those of you if, who are on the call, if any of you know Amanda, you know she's the most remarkable results-oriented person. She said to me, what would it take you to do a special workshop for me? Oh, and I said, Amanda, if you would gather a dozen people, we could host a workshop. And she did. And we had a workshop. And she went back to Hunter Douglas and introduced appreciative inquiry. And the way she did it is she went into a meeting with this team. Uh, Rick Pellet, who was the general manager, had been the chief financial officer. And Rick was heading up a team to oversee the uh, transfer of the computer system. And she said, now we have an agenda for the day. But before we get going, I'd like to ask you a question. You can begin to hear the appreciative inquiry sneaking in there. Uh, she said, I'd like you each to make note on a piece of paper about a time you've been involved in change. Maybe it was a technology change, but any change, a large change in an organization, something you may have been the leader of it, you may have been a participant. And even if there wasn't something at work, it might have been something in your church or in your community. But think about a change that was very successful. And now make note about what contributed to that success. She gave them a few minutes to make some notes and then went around the room and said, now let's share these stories. And by the time they had heard seven, eight, nine stories of successful change, they had confidence that they could do what was in front of them. Wow. Because they knew they had experienced it, but they also heard from each other what they believe constitutes successful change. So in that case, it wasn't a typical appreciative interview, but it was an appreciative question, a focus on what they wanted more of, successful change. And then they were able to build from that a very clear plan for going forward. At that point, Rick Pellet said, I want to learn more about this process. And he and his vice president of HR, his director of customer service, and two other leaders came to a Foundations of Appreciative Inquiry workshop, a five-day workshop, so that they could really learn what they were about to use as a process for that technology transfer. Over many years, they've used appreciative inquiry in a wide variety of ways. And in the second edition of the book, there is a 10-year update. Oh, great. Yeah, it's very exciting. Well, I'll have to stay tuned for that. Right. <laughs> I, I should mention right here and now, um, since I didn't in the beginning as I was introducing you, Diana, that the, the second edition of the book, The Power of Appreciative Inquiry, um, was made available two weeks ago. Uh, so congratulations uh, on that, and uh, I'm eager to get my hands on it. Um, I, I'd like to, uh, Chapter 8 of, of the book, you mentioned that the appreciative interview is a the non-negotiable piece of this whole process. It's like what makes appreciative inquiry appreciative inquiry. And there are really eight steps uh, to this. Um, and since it's so central, I'd really like to take the remaining time that we have today to kind of walk people through the steps so they really can see how everything fits together and how it all works. Crafting the appreciative inquiry questions is the first step. I was wondering if you could tell us uh, you know, about this step and, and the resources uh, you've created to help folks do this successfully. The crafting of the question is essential. Um, let me first answer the question of resources and then talk about how, how to do it. 
Um, we've talked about the power of appreciative inquiry. Uh, that's the book that we're showcasing in this interview. There is another book called An Encyclopedia of Positive Questions, which gives a, a set of sample questions that can be used or can be modified. There's also a book on appreciative team building, which is a set of sample questions. And there's a book called Positive Family Dynamics, which is a set of sample questions. So each of these books have 40 to 50 questions that you can look at, uh, borrow directly, or adapt and make your own. When we're working in an organization, as I said earlier, the questions are crafted by the members of the organization. They choose a change agenda, and then they choose topics that are related to that change agenda. And their topics will be more specific. And they write questions about the topics. So when I gave you the example of I could ask a question about stress or I could ask a question about joyful productivity, those are what we call the topics. Joyful productivity is a topic. So often in organizations, their focus is on the problem. Their focus, for example, is on turnover. What can we do to improve our turnover situation? And my question is now, are you saying you want more turnover? And that's not what people want, but that's what they talk about, and that's what they inquire into. So the first step is to flip from that problem, turnover, to something that we value, that we want. It might be as simple as retention, or it could be as interesting as one of our clients studied a magnetic work environment. And so you see that when we, we go from, oh, turnover is such a problem around here, we can look at what is it that keeps people here, or we can look at what is the environment that actually attracts and holds people. And so our topic choice is the first step, and it's very important. It's a very strategic step, because if we don't get topics that are relevant to our change agenda and are what we want more of, we can take our inquiry down a, a slightly misguided path. So topic choice. And then we write questions about our topic. And those questions can be um, what we call high point questions. Tell me about a time that you would consider a high point in your career, a high point of, let's go back to joyful productivity, a high point experience. Tell me about a time when you experienced that. What was it that contributed to that joyful productivity? How did you contribute? Who else was involved and what did they do? And so you take the topic and you write a question seeking a story. Appreciative inquiry seeks stories. And then all of the information about the story, the who, what, when, where, because that's the information for your root cause of success. Another very typical classic appreciative inquiry question has to do with valuing. What is it that you most value about your team's ability to create joyful productivity? If I were to talk to people who know you, Susan, what would they tell me about you as a person who really works in a joyfully productive way. And so we're asking questions about what we value about people, what we value about teams, what we value about organizations. And then the third very typical appreciative inquiry question has to do with envisioning the future. Appreciative inquiry seeks stories. It seeks stories that will help us transform our images of possibility. So we might say, 
let's just imagine that it's five years from now and the bookends book club, the virtual book club, won an award for the most joyfully productive virtual organization on the planet. What did you do to get that award? Tell me about it. What are people saying? And so we create a vision that raises the sense of possibility beyond even our current high point experiences. And then we ask questions specifically. Now, what would be the design of a new uh, book club? Um, what kind of technology would we need? So we come back down from the vision into specifics so that, again, we would have data to know how to move forward. And so we create an interview guide with questions like the ones I've just described. So these questions go into this interview guide. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the guide itself? You know, how flexible is this and what are, you know, is it just the questions that are involved in this or is there any other components involved in, in the guide itself? Well, the, the, the interview guide, it, we're now in the realm um, where my most favorite answer to questions is it depends. And that's, that's never, a, you know, uh, someone's favorite answer, but it does depend. If the interview guide is being used throughout a community, for example, um, Boulder County did a, a, an appreciative inquiry project on aging. That kind of interview guide has to have um, an introduction that sets the stage. It often has a summary sheet so that the person doing the interview could take notes and summarize what they learned. If it's an interview guide for a, a meeting and there are 20 people brought together, to talk about how to, oh, I don't know, do something, paint a house. I'm in the process of having my house painted. So to paint a house. And the people have come together to talk about their favorite colors and the best way to go about approaching this process. That interview guide would be much simpler. And since it's just for a meeting, there probably wouldn't be a summary sheet because the people could remember what they learned in their interview and immediately turn around and share it with each other. And so the interview guides are created uh, to meet the need of the process. And if they are going to be used for a short time, they're a bit simpler than if they're used over time where the data needs to be recorded and uh, summarized and then ultimately analyzed. So there are some sample interview guides in um, the book that I referred to, the Encyclopedia of Positive Questions, uh, as well as um, there are interview guides in the Appreciative Inquiry Handbook, which is another uh, great resource. Good. Well, the next step, once we have this guide in place, is a little bit more tactical we next need to create an interview plan. Can you tell us uh, you know, about the things that we really need to consider as we move into this next step? Well, the interview plan is quite important. And if we go back to that thinking about the core team in, in, that is really guiding, designing and guiding the process, the core team asks itself the question, who should be involved in the interview? How many interviews should we do? Um, should we involve all of our stakeholders, our customers, our vendors, our patients, our students? If it's a school, certainly students should be involved, parents, faculty. So the first question is, who are our stakeholders? Whom should we interview? And then how many people shall we interview? Another set of questions is who should do the interviews? Should we have a group of people who are trained as interviewers and they go out and do interviews? Or should we host little meetings where people can interview each other and share the output of their interviews? So the process of creating inquiry 
and having it ripple through the organization is very important. I was recently uh, talking to Ron Fry, who's one of the early um, people at Case Western who's involved with David Cooperator and Shiresh Shravastava when Appreciative Inquiry really got got started. And Ron's still on the faculty at Case. And we were, we were sharing stories, and he said, we had a very interesting situation. We were working in a manufacturing organization, and we were doing a summit, an Appreciative Inquiry summit, which is a large group meeting. There were about 150 people involved, and the focus was on quality. In preparation for coming to the summit, everyone who was attending was asked to do two or three interviews on quality, quality at its best, the processes that contributed to quality. And what, they, what surprised them was that at the end of the interview period of time, before the summit, the quality ratings in the organization had improved significantly. So the mere process, and I suppose I should not say mere, but the process of doing the interviews and changing the conversation, focusing it on something that you really value and want more of, stories of great quality, made a difference. It improved the quality in the organization. And then they went on to host the summit and talk about what else they could do, and the ratings improved again. But it was that initial inner inquiry that surprised everyone. And so the importance of your interview plan cannot be underestimated. You want it to be as dialogical as possi possible, not just people interviewing other people. You want people to have a conversation with each other, and the interview is the vehicle to make that happen. It's a great example. In the next part of the process, the, the uh, inquiry strategy has to be communicated somehow to the larger organization. Can you share an example of how you've seen this done successfully? Yeah, it's one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite things. You know, in many organizations, if you say, you know, how, how are things in your organization, whether you ask for a positive or a negative, people are going to tell you communication is horrible. It just It's just one of those things. And so when I walk into an organization and I get to know them, and we get to this point, I say, you know, appreciative inquiry is about success. And it's about doing things that are going to help everyone succeed. So we have to communicate this, perhaps in ways you've never communicated before. So at British Airways, for example, customer service representatives don't have computers. They don't have an office. At best, they share a cubicle with a group of other people. And so sending out letters and announcements and even invitations personally wasn't going to let people know what was going on. And people were pretty tired of the newsletter that kind of comes around and they don't know when they're going to get it or what's in it. And so we created news posters. And it was innovative. And all of a sudden, these brightly colored posters with the power of two were hung on the wall. And people would walk by. And of course, they had pictures of people doing interviews in the process, and they had stories, and they were interesting. And so we used a communication process that had never been used before. And it was interesting for people. At Hunter Douglas, Hunter Douglas um, was, is, is a leading company in its field of window fashions. It, it, is a, it is a leader in, in, by innovation and sales. It's highly regarded. But it's also a fast-growing company when we met them. And they didn't have an internal newsletter. 
So they created one called Appreciative Inquiries, and they used that newsletter to talk about what to expect, um, to put results and stories from the interviews. And that worked very well because it was an organization that didn't have a vehicle. And, of course, you can imagine that that vehicle then transformed to become an ongoing newsletter for people in the organization. So there are a couple of, of my favorite stories. Yeah, and once again, you know, hopefully people are, are recognizing that it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's lots of ways to do it that that can be successful just based on the organization and its needs. Exactly. So I'd like to move on into the step that we've all been waiting to talk about, that's actually conducting the interview, and uh, wondering if you could tell us, you know, share with us any wisdom that you would have to help make this successful. Well, I think the only thing I will say is find an opportunity to have one, to do one. They're very meaningful experiences for people, but the the one I guess guiding principle, we we use a phrase called improbable pairs. We encourage the interviews to be done across lines, to be done among people who might otherwise not be in communication or might think that they don't have much in common. So it would be across departments, across divisions, across functions, across ages, across, across ethnicities. And what we find is that when we ask people to find someone different than themselves and to do an interview about the things they most value, an appreciative interview, they come away from that interview saying, well, we have so much in common. And so it has been delightful over years of doing appreciative inquiry to realize that as human beings, when we take the time to really listen to one another, to witness each other's stories, to help others feel heard, that we touch a common humanity. And that's perhaps one of the things I most cherish about appreciative inquiry. Even if the question is about money, this is one of my favorite stories. You mentioned the United Religions Initiative when you introduced me. It's a global interfaith organization. Several years ago, the, the team of people in San Francisco who were among the founders wanted to do fundraising to create an endowment fund to be able to have regular mm, monies available for people throughout the world. And so the conversation about we're going to raise you know, $5 million so that every year, and we'll save it so that every year we can have so many hundred thousand dollars to spend was incomprehensible to people in India who said, what do you mean? If we have $5 million, do you know what we can do with that now? <laughs> and people in Latin America saying, well, we can't wait that long to get that money. We need whatever we have now. And so we decided to invite the Global Council, people from around the world and every faith imaginable, every religion, every spiritual tradition, from indigenous to Buddhist to Jewish to Christian to Muslims to Hindus to Baha'i, just on and on. We decided to engage them in an inquiry about money and to choose a partner who is different from themselves. So Sam Chan, a very successful businessman in California, interviewed Raul, an indigenous man from Peru. And when they came back from their interviews, the two of them were in tears. 
we had asked them to talk about what money meant to them and how it had really supported their life, enabled things to happen that might not otherwise happen. And it seems that they had a common theme, that when Sam was a young man, his father sold the farm in, I believe it was, oh, Taiwan, one of the Asian countries, I'm sorry, I can't remember it, so that Sam could afford to come to the United States and get an education. Now, Sam, because of that, felt responsible to care for his sisters and their younger brother and to work hard so that they could all get an education because his father had sacrificed. Well, it turns out that Raul was in the process of doing the same thing making sacrifices so that his son could get an education. So not only did the two of them sit there as fathers and sons and sons and fathers and share their stories, but they bonded in a way that was, you just couldn't imagine by simply introducing them at a cocktail party, which neither of them would attend. Two people from different parts of the world with the same story. It's kind of a Yes. And over and over again with appreciative inquiry, you find that. And it led Sam to become more of a donor and particularly to help in Latin America. And it opened Rule's eyes to the fact that not all people of wealth are the bad guys. So a simple inquiry transforms lives, relationships, communities, and ultimately the world. Simple but quite elegant. (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, Diana, before we wrap up our time today, um, I I was wondering if you could share with us, and there are a couple of more steps in the process, but I'm going to encourage people to buy the book to see see what those remaining steps uh, look like and and what's involved in those. But um, I was wondering if you would be willing to share some of the highlights and surprises um, that the whole process brought uh, about with your client at Hunter Douglas. Well, I I think one of the highlights was how extraordinarily easy it was to engage people. Uh, People from all walks of life. Their employee population ranges from, you know, researchers who develop new products to the printers who print the fabric and the folks who assemble the shades. And what happened was that people became engaged in the process and they deepened their relationship with each other. There was story after story of new relationships being formed. And those relationships obviously helping the work be done more effectively. There was also an empowering of people. One of the fabric printers said to me about a year into the process, I said, so what's different? And he said, well, it used to be that if the R&D group had a new idea and they needed to use my machine for something, they would go to my supervisor. My supervisor would look at the schedule, and he would tell me when to do it. Now they come directly to me, and I know what my work schedule is, and I tell them when we can do it. And so it it broke down the barriers of hierarchy, and it broke down the barriers, the silos across business units. All of that um, really energized people and supported the business results. And so they saw significant improvements in the business, in sales and profits, and significant improvements in employee surveys. Well, you certainly can't ask for more than that. That's true. (laughs) 
Well, Diana, we've really only had the chance to just touch on the first phase of the appreciative inquiry process. In fact, you know, we did entirely cover that. And I'd really, uh, you know, hoping that folks will appreciate uh, this field guide that you've created because it really does walk them through the entire process and show them so many different ways that each piece and each step can be approached differently with examples of of different uh, client projects that that you've been involved with. Are there other resources, um, training, things that you would make available to folks that really want to develop some strong skills around appreciative inquiry? Thank you. Well, you mentioned my website in the beginning, www.positivechange.org, and there are a wide range of things there. Um, there are there are recordings of workshops that David and Cooperator and I taught. Okay. There is a, a recording of a workshop that Amanda Trust and Bloom and I taught. So there's some very tangible things. Um, I I do want to say I know it's a very last minute, but in two weeks, March 8th, I am teaching the foundations of appreciative inquiry workshop, which is the content of the book, The Power of Appreciative Inquiry, taught and experienced. And so if there's anyone who happens to be free that week, there is space available. Um, and where is that work? That is Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And so that is just one. There are also other workshops that you can find on our website. There is also a, a fabulous website called the AI Commons. And um, you can Google it. Um, it's at Case Western Reserve University. There's a wealth of information there. Um, I I think that um, you could also look at the Change Handbook, which is um, published by Barrett Kohler. It has a chapter about appreciative inquiry along with some other change methodologies. So there are a number of books that are very good resources, and there are a number of workshops that we offer, uh, including your certificate program, if you're uh, serious about really getting appreciative inquiry in your bones, is what we say. And you, of course, are also available to uh, be contracted with organizations that are looking for an experienced guide for the process. I am. I am. And we have a a team of, of people who work in areas from nonprofits, working with specifically with HR departments. My work tends to be very large-scale transformation. Um, Amanda does the same. But the other thing I'll say, if, if you don't mind, Susan, a pitch for a brand-new book that will be out in July or early August called Appreciative Leadership, Focus on What Works to Drive Winning Performance and Build a Thriving Organization. I am so excited about it because it's the first book that takes appreciative inquiry from being a process for organizational transformation and really puts it firmly into a set of practices for leadership. And is that published through BK? McGraw-Hill. Okay. Right, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. It is, indeed. (laughs) Barrett Kohler is the publisher of The Power of Appreciative Inquiry and some of the best business books out there today. I would agree. And Steve Parasanti, who is the president and founder, um, really supports his authors and says, if there's a book that we don't publish, take it somewhere else. (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, Diana, I just really want to thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with all of us uh, today. I've really enjoyed really having the chance to learn a a lot more about appreciative inquiry. Um, It is a a new field of practice for me, and and I certainly have appreciated having this personal time with you today to talk about it. Uh, uh, And uh, I once again want to encourage um, anyone listening to purchase your book um, and, and and the other resources that you've mentioned today. Uh, And once again, that website is www.positivechange.org. I also would like to remind folks uh, to join us tomorrow on Bookends. We typically only uh, host Bookends once a month, but we are doing a double feature this month. And believe it or not, tomorrow I will be um, hosting Stuart Levin, 
who is the author of Getting to Resolution, another very transforming book. In the month of March, we'll have a chance to visit with Elizabeth Doty, who is the author of The Compromise Trap. And then in April, we'll have an opportunity to spend a little time with Bruce Rosenstein, who is the author of Living in More Than One World. So uh, uh, an exciting lineup over the next couple of months and actually throughout the year as we look at this Uh, opportunity for change and transformation on many levels, personal levels, team levels, leadership levels, organizational levels. So um, following our interview today, I'd once again like to invite anyone listening to join this conversation by uh, joining the group on LinkedIn called Book Ends the Discussion. You can pose questions for Diana, uh, who hopefully will be joining us in this discussion group, along with your colleagues and peers. Um, So you will find a link there to our recording as soon as we've posted that, and you can share that with others, or you can re-listen yourself. So please encourage your friends to join us in this group, and once again, we want to especially thank our special guest today, Diana Whitney. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Susan, and thank you for the wonder wonderful resource that you have with bookends. Thank you. Take take care now, Diana. Bye-bye, everyone.